If you have your Bible this morning, would you uh, pull it out and maybe it's on your phone or your iPad or you have a hard copy and go to John chapter 3. No Romans this morning. No cheering, okay? John chapter 3. I'll explain uh, why we're going into that in just a minute. A couple details. Um, That was pretty awesome worship, you guys. Well done. Well done. God's worthy of all of it. I don't know um, what you did in the last week, and, and by that I mean I don't know what activities you're involved in, and if, if there's sinful activities in the past week, let, let that rest from your mind if you came in here with a feeling of great guilt upon you. Jesus died for everything you did, past, everything you will do, future, everything present. So when we come before him this morning and we look at his word, he, he wants to speak to you, and it's really important that you, you get it straight in your head that God loves everybody, and he died for everybody, but not everybody receives what he offers. And so we got to talk about some hard things this morning, and that's why I want to take you into John chapter 3, so you can see kind of God talking about that issue. But before we do that, I have a couple details related to the building for you. Um, This week is the last week that we've got some sample chairs, and we want you to help us choose a chair. If you haven't been here in the last couple weeks, you wouldn't know that, but in the back of the auditorium, there's a chair lettered A and the chair lettered B and the chair lettered C, and we really would love your help to try those out. And by the way, you're not choosing the fabric, okay? You're just choosing the comfort. And it doesn't take a genius to look through the list and see that there's one that's rising to the top among everybody else, and and it seems to be the wide one. (laughs) I kind of like that one. So if you get a chance before you leave this morning, choose A, B, or C. And there's a a list back there. Just write your name down and, and your choice next to it. That would be helpful. And here's another detail. You haven't seen a financial chart update recently, but we wanted you to see this slide because in the last week, another $40,000 came in and said, yeah, praise the Lord, right? That's fantastic. So uh, 4600000 roughly, 631000 so inching towards that goal of 5-6, but really, really a great component of the building program that we've been working on with the architect is that a couple weeks after Easter, we're going to bring a video in for everybody to see in all four services. So it's a 3D tour that the architect has put together so you can see physically what is this thing going to look like. And it'll have in it samples of the colors, and you get to see the design. I think it's very cool. You go right through the front door into the auditorium and throughout the entire facility, and they've they've done a spectacular job with it. And so that's the second thing on the building. And here's a third thing. If you have your calendar with you, we want you to note this. Maybe you have your phone or maybe you do old school and you write down your, your calendar dates, but write down May 20th. And the reason for that is we're going to bring all four services together for one out at the new property for a groundbreaking service. That'll be fun, right? Yeah. So uh, at this point, uh, contractors are telling us that they'd be able to start in the first week of June. So we want to do groundbreaking just before that, which would be May 20th. So just note that in your calendar. So we're going to go into John 3 this morning, and I'm, I'm asking this question, what do you believe about God? And for a very specific reason, if you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard this statement most likely, what you believe about God determines what you do. 
And if you've not heard that before and you need a minute to chew on it, I'm going to give you some time to process that because it's going to come up multiple times this morning as we look at this passage. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Let's pray before we step in. Father, I'm asking that you would do for us what only you can do. There's a need that we desire, and sometimes we push away from the desire to be more like you. And so believers desire to be more conformed to the image of Christ, but there's times when we really repel against that, Father, because it's so uncomfortable sometimes. And I pray that you would move against the stagnant nature that we have to want to be so stubborn and set in our ways that we refuse to yield certain things to you. But Father, I also pray for individuals who might not yet be believers, who are are still checking this out, that there would not be this temptation to just let it ride one more time. But God, I also pray for a third group, and I, I pray for the pretenders. Whether there's pretenders in this auditorium or watching online right now, God, I I pray that that sense that we have of thinking we can fool you will be eradicated because of the the pressing power of your Holy Spirit. So I, I pray right now that your word would be alive and it would be active and it's sharp and you said that it always is, it does things. So I I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us right now, that we would respond to you as you speak to us. We pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You never find a clearer image of God than the week before he's crucified. When Jesus is on the hill, as Michael was describing, and he's looking out over this crest as he's beginning to descend into Jerusalem, and the crowd's going crazy. There's hundreds of thousands, according to historians as they study this, there's lots and lots and lots of people because Passover's going on, and there's so many people gathered who have swarmed around Jesus. And they're cheering and they're celebrating, and in history throughout the church for 2,000 years, it's been referred to as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And as Jesus makes his way into the city, he's cresting over this hill, and I don't mean this to be in a disrespectful way, but it's like touchdown Jesus because he's in the end zone and people are celebrating what he's done. And here's the part where it's like touchdown Jesus. You've watched a receiver in the midst of a football game catch, go into the end zone, spike the ball, and begin calling the crowd to do this. And not in a disrespectful way, Jesus is saying, you're right to do this. The deaf can hear, the blind can see. Those who were dead are walking. Those who were demon-possessed, they are freed. So bring it. Go ahead. Bring me your praise. I have put my power on display. Go ahead. Celebrate, because even the rocks can see who I am. Yet, it's only a few moments later. As he makes his way down the hill, he stops. The donkey comes to a halt. And he looks out over all of culture, and he looks out over that massive city, and he begins weeping. And there's a very specific reason for the weeping, and that's why I wanted you to start with me in Luke, so just keep your hand in John if you're there, John 3, but look on the screen at Luke 19 and look at this description. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, 
saying, if you had known, and I want you to bear down on that word know because it's going to come out a lot today. If you had known, in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. And then Jesus breaks into a prophecy. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And he's speaking of 70 A.D., when Rome obliterated Israel, and they were scattered. They were dispersed as a nation until 1948. They never had a nation again like they had there. And Jesus says, here's why. Because you did not know, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, how you interpret this passage and what we're about to look at has a great deal to do with your view of God what you believe about God. In the big picture, humanity has missed this apex of relationship. It's right in front of them, and they miss it because they have a preconceived idea about who God is. So watch, just look at that statement, Luke 19, 41. He approached Jerusalem, and he says, if you had only known if you had only recognized, but you did not. Now, there's a word that's not in your notes this morning, a Greek word that's going to go up on the screen, and it's the word genosko. And why this is really significant to me is the meaning in the midst of it, the definition. Genosko means to allow. So there's something bigger going on here than just intellect. It's not a lack of information. God's saying if you had just taken down that mental barricade that you built up, if you had just allowed this, so there's a couple significant things going on here. How could they not know? Have you ever read the Bible and looked in the, in the New Testament and wondered, what in the world is going on? How can these people not see it? It's so clear. It's right there in front of them. Well, there's a difference between being blind and refusing to see. Being blind just doesn't have the spiritual equipment. But refusing to see, it's got the equipment, but just absolutely says, no, I'm, I'm not going there. But also, what's at stake? Here's the second part. What's at stake? Why is God grieving? Well, there's consequences. There's consequences for refusing. So why I wanted to go with John 3 for you this morning is because it gives us some insight into human nature. Why we do those things, why we refuse what's right there and plain in front of us, because what we believe about God determines what we do next. So let's go to John 3, and if you've never looked at the book of John before, John is an eyewitness writer, and he gives very vivid details. He's like Mark, he's an action writer, but he really expands on it. So let's go to John 3 and verse 1, and he writes this, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So I'm picturing this. I'm picturing there's this knock at the door. Hey, is Jesus there? Right? Wouldn't that be cool if you want to walk up to a house and just ask if Jesus is inside? Can you imagine in that moment? Now, we're told that he's a Pharisee, which means he represents the working class, they're very popular, the Pharisees are, among the common people. And he's somewhere in his early to mid-30s, most likely at the youngest, because you had to be that age to be a ruler in Israel. And he sits, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Supreme Court. So he's a ruler, he's a Pharisee, which means he's a lawyer. So he's an expert in the law. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin. 
And so he sits on the highest bench in the land, and he walks in the door, and verse 2, we're told, he says, Rabbi, we know you're from God because nobody can do what you do unless they're from God. Do you notice that he doesn't ask any questions? He just walks in and makes a statement. So he's attracted to Jesus because of the miracles, and he wants information about the miracles. So clearly, he's been watching Jesus, right? He's been observing from a distance, and he's watching people as the crowds get bigger, and they listen to his teaching, and he knows he's never attracted crowds like that. He knows that he's never done a miracle, and he's fascinated with Jesus. So you got this guy of really high moral character and a super achiever, and yet he's got this religious hunger, this spiritual desire. But Jesus does not take his statement at face value because it's solely based on signs. Go with me to the next verse. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus never asked about that, right? He never asked directly about heaven. He didn't even ask a question, but Jesus just breaks out there on him. Why? Because that's what's on his heart because he's got this fascination with the supernatural. But Jesus is not interested in his curiosity, so he goes straight to the heart. And I hope you've had somebody like this in your life who goes straight to the real issue and says, Nicodemus, what you need is transformation. So he's very, very direct, and this is a hallmark of God. Not mean, but direct. He goes straight to the issue and says to Nicodemus, what you need to know is that you're going to hell, Nicodemus. Heaven is not waiting for you. The way you are right now, you won't get in because you need to be born again unless you're born again. And if you're not even a church person, you've heard that phrase. You've heard it associated with Christians, born again. What does that actually mean? And Jesus uses this phrase. Well, there are two Greek words that you're going to see in your notes, and they're both on the screen. And these particular words, the first one we get. Ganao is just talking about something that's brought forth. It's delivered, like when a baby is delivered from the womb. But the second component of it, that word, this is a compound structure that Jesus put together. He's saying born again, meaning from above, a new birth. In other words, what we're talking about here is a fresh start. Do you need a fresh start this morning? Do you need a new beginning? That's what God offers. God's saying, this is what you need, and it's an action of God. Only God can bring life from death, amen? Only God can do that. So this is an action of God. He gives life to those who are dead in their sins. So this is a match for Scripture, 1 Peter 1.3. God, according to His mercy, has caused us. See, it's God doing it. God has caused us. We didn't do it. God has caused us to be born again. Now, the implications for this are staggering to Nicodemus because he has just walked in the door thinking he has everything figured out. All the things he needs to know about God, he knows. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling elite. He's dedicated himself to studying God's word. So Nick already knows what he knows to be good with God. He's got that down. Here's why. Because the Jews thought doing things made them good with God. 
Like, if I just do this, this, and this. So all his life, he's observed the law. All his life, he's kept the commandments. He's like Paul. Remember what Paul said? I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised of the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a Jew of Jews. That's, that's Nicodemus. He's a good guy. He goes to church. And if the church doors are open, he's there. I've been good. And now Jesus is telling him, you've got to abandon that thinking. Ultimately, what he's saying is your human effort can't save you. That there's no one who's going to enter heaven without the regeneration. You guys know if you've been here at New Hope for any length of time that I like to quote old dead theologians, and Lenski is one of those. I want you to see his quote. Look with me on the screen. Jesus' words regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. So there's no advantage to being a member of the Supreme Court. There's no advantage to being the guy who always shows up for church. There's no advantage to being a good guy because being a good guy doesn't cut it. Are you checking the point, counterpoint going on here? This guy walks in the door. Hey, is, is Jesus here? We know you're from God because you can do great things. You're like a prophet. And the counterpoint is, even though he's paid a really nice compliment to Jesus, Jesus says, you're going to hell, man. Right? You're from God. And God says, you're not in the kingdom. He's just told a really religious man, you don't get it. What about you this morning, New Hope? What do you believe about God? What do you personally believe about the issue of what it takes to be good with God? Because what you believe about God determines what you do. And if that's you this morning, you're wrestling through this, Nicodemus is right there with you. Watch his response. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, this guy's highly educated. So there's no mistaking Jesus' words. He gets what he's saying, so he replies in context, and here's how he's really responding. How can I start all over? How is that possible? That's why he says, why, what are you telling me? A man can enter into a, his mother's womb is like a brand new beginning, Jesus. How is that possible? Probably some of you have asked that question along the way. Can I, can I get a brand new beginning? Can I get a do-over? Because I have messed up. I have done so many things wrong. See, clearly, he's not grasping this. Jesus, you're speaking of something that is humanly impossible. Exactly. It's humanly impossible, right, church? It's not possible for you to do this. So here's the challenge that's before you this morning, and it's the same one that's before Nicodemus. The challenge is to abandon every notion that we've ever had that we can fix ourselves. We can't fix our brokenness. So if you think you're not good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven, you're right. You're not. On your own, you can't. That's why you need Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that makes you right. Right? 
Because we're not talking about fixing your old, old nature. We're not talking about tweaking things. If I just didn't swear so much, if I just didn't get so angry at people, if I, maybe if I just gave enough money. No, we're not talking about altering your old nature. We're talking about a brand new beginning, a new birth. Now, church people, I want you especially to notice what's going on here. Jesus expects Nicodemus to know this. He's a church guy. He shows up at synagogue. He goes to the temple and makes sacrifices. He spends time in the Old Testament. And Jesus expects him to know this. Go with me to verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, clearly he's shocked. And God's saying, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked at this Nicodemus. What is Jesus telling him? Contrary to everything that you've ever thought, even though your entire life you thought that just being a good guy gets you in and you can work your way there, you must be born again. Now, this word must is really important. The last word in the Greek language I'm going to bear down on, and it's spelled D-E-I. And this particular word is something that means of necessity. It has to happen. It's, it's binding. So Jesus used this exact same word when he said, it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up. It, it must happen. And when he spoke of the resurrection, it is necessary. The Son of Man must be resurrected. This is the exact same way he's saying it. It has to happen. So Nicodemus' response, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? See, he still can't accept it. How hard is it to surrender preconceived ideas, church? Let's just talk basketball for a minute, okay? How hard, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? How hard is it, if maybe some of your brackets have been busted pretty bad, how hard is it to surrender preconceived ideas when your team doesn't make it into the championship playoff? And, and yet you expected them to be there, right? All, all the signs pointed that direction. And that's preconceived ideas on a human level. How hard, is that too recent of an illustration? Sorry, uh, the wounds are fresh, right? How hard is it to surrender preconceived ideas about God and about heaven. That's a whole new level. We're talking baggage, right? We're talking about all the things that our uncles and our aunts and our background has ever pressed against us to make us think certain ways about how God functions and how he performs. How hard is it to surrender preconceived ideas? I personally value individuals in my life who will say hard things. Now, not necessarily always in that moment, but I value individuals who are willing to say hard things. Did you know that God says hard things? God does. I talked with a young man this last week who, who doesn't live in this city, and he's in another city, and he's looking for a church. And he said to me, where are all the churches that are willing to say hard things? Because he's not necessarily a church guy, but he's read the Bible, and he says, as I read the Bible... I see God saying some pretty hard things, yet when I go to churches, it's all soft stuff. It's mushy. Where are the churches that are willing to say the hard things? Well, if you're looking for a church home, I think we're willing to say the hard things here at New Hope, if that's you. God says hard things, and I don't mean mean things. 
God says hard things, and there is a huge temptation to soften those things. And I'm sorry to say that it is true of churches all over the world right now that they have softened the word of God and have made it very muddy. You never find God letting off the gas pedal. God always pushes on the accelerator harder and harder and puts more gas in the carburetor. He pushes back really hard. Watch the next verse, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? How do you not know? See, this is the same thing that he was speaking of with the people on Palm Sunday coming down the hill. You don't get it. You've got all the information. How do you not know? See, Jesus expects him to know. Why? Because he's got revealed knowledge. He's an expert in the law. He knows the Old Testament forward and backward. And Jesus is saying, how do you not know? Apparently, according to Jesus, the Old Testament, that was all the light that was necessary. He believes that there's enough information there. You should have known. Verse 11, watch. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify and what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Somebody just shouted out, but when Nicodemus came to the door asking the question, he's saying, "Um, I'm, I'm looking for Jesus. What was he really looking for information about? Somebody shouted out. Yeah, yeah, the... Absolutely. He's looking for information about the miracles, the heavenly things, bigger issue going on in his heart. And God says, I'm not even going to talk to you about that because you don't get it. I can't even talk to you about being born again. Why would I waste my time telling you about heavenly things? It wouldn't make sense to you. So note what's going on here. Maybe you've never spent a lot of time in John chapter 3, but from this point forward, It begins a one-way conversation. The Pharisee adds nothing more to it. He's simply a listener as God begins to expand. So there's not a lack of revelation going on here. This guy, in this brief dialogue, has heard more information that Noah and Daniel and Moses ever got to hear. He gets to talk to Jesus himself. So he's not lacking revelation. He's hearing directly from God. So Jesus surfaces the real issue going on. And if this isn't the issue going on in your life right now, it's probably going on in the life of somebody you know. Here's the real issue. He says, you do not accept our testimony. And this word accept is a really big deal with Jesus. This word accept actually is a word lumbano. And when Jesus is saying, how do you not know? This is the word that he's using. You check it and you'll find it true on Palm Sunday. If you had only lumbano, but you did not lumbano. And then he says to Nicodemus, how do you not do this? How do you not accept? You do not lumbano our testimony. See, there's a difference between being blind and refusing to see. As you look at this word lambano, you see it means actually to receive it, to get a hold, to actually catch it. I've got a a willing volunteer this morning in the auditorium who's going to throw. Trevor, would you stand up? It's going to throw something to me. Just hang on to it for a second. So he's, he's holding the Frisbee. See, if you guys sat in the front, you could play Frisbee with the pastor too. 
Don't tell the elders we did this. We're playing frisbee in the auditorium on Sunday morning, okay? So how's your throw? Yeah, you're under pressure, Trevor. Okay, so if you're watching online, you can't see this right now. Trevor's holding a, a Frisbee, and he's going to throw this to me. And I, go ahead, Trevor. Just put it right here. Good throw. Really. That was a good throw. Well done. Okay. He hit the target. See, he put the Frisbee right in the bread basket. But I didn't receive it. All I had to do was take hold of it. Just reach out and grab it. Nicodemus, you're not catching the Frisbee, man. It's right there. Nicodemus, you're just like the rest of society. All of the culture that Jesus is crying over. But you did not, Lombano. I put the Frisbee right there. My power is on display Everybody can see it, and you're just letting it fly right on past. You see how shallow that statement was, church, when he said, we know you're from God. God knows your heart. That is such a shallow statement. We believe you're from God because you can do great things. Look at you. You're a miracle worker. Tell me about those miracles. I want to know more about that. The, the shallow statement is absolutely meaningless. And it makes me think of Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus said, there's going to be a whole lot of people lining up before the, the judgment throne one day. And they're going to say, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never saw you catch the frisbee. It was right there, and you didn't have relationship. You only saw me as a miracle worker. So we got these two sides to this guy going on. There's this intellectual professor side who's processing all this information from a distance. You're a great man. You're really powerful. Yet when he's told what he personally needs, here's humanity's issue. The intellectual side gives way to the power of pride because he's just been told he's a sinner in need of a savior. And he believes he's got God already figured out. If I just do this, this, and this, he doesn't want to admit what he needs. So Jesus, he's going to let him go now. But he's got an illumination for him and a clarification. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. As Moses lifted up, what, what is he talking about? Especially if you're new to church, you're thinking, what is that? Well, Jesus has just gone old school on the Pharisee. And maybe you're thinking, well, first century is old school. Well, Jesus is going back a thousand years in time. And he's taking the guy who's an expert in the Old Testament to the Old Testament. And he's just not letting him out the door without giving him this one more thought. As Moses lifted up the serpent, what is that? Well, here's the quick background. And I, I challenge you to read this verse in Numbers 21 later today. Read the story, Numbers 21.9, and see what's going on there, really. But it's stated this way. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So here's what's going on. There's a whole bunch of vipers. 
that are cruising around and they're killing the children of Israel and there's lots and lots and lots of them and people are dying left and right because there's a punishment taking place because they've abandoned God. Sin is rampant. And God says, there's a cure, Moses. You go ahead and do what I'm telling you to do. Lift something up on a pole, the thing that I'm telling you to do. Put it up there on display. And if anybody looks to that in faith, they will be healed from the poison. Now, this is God speaking to Nicodemus in this exact same way. Nicodemus, you have to know this stuff. You're an expert. It's right there in front of you. God has always been the God of grace. People have a need. God is there to meet the need. Nicodemus, the whole world has been bitten by a snake. The snake has put poison in everybody's blood system. And the effect of the poison is death. And the solution to the serpent problem is not pretending that it's not there. And it's not in passing anti-serpent laws. And it's not in conforming to the lifestyle of the serpents in hopes that they will like you. The answer is in looking by faith to that which was lifted up on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's pointing him to. That's why Jesus says, John 3, 16, Nicodemus, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever catches the frisbee Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Is it not amazing to you that God loves this world of humans? I don't know about you guys, but every time I read that verse, I'm like, God, why do you love us so much? We are so messed up. But he loves us so much. It is so vast and so wonderful and so incomprehensible that he gives his only son. How in the world do you express that kind of magnitude? No words. That, that's Paul. Paul wrote that in Corinthians. He said it this way, 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his no words gift. I have no words to describe this. It is so significant and so incomprehensible. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. And can I just be really, really clear with you right now? Jesus is not one of the ways to God. He is the only way to God. It's not an option. He is the way. So let's keep in context what's going on here. He's promising that those who will not receive him perish. And that's hard words. And it's not mean it's hard because God has just declared it. Because if there's eternal life, there must be eternal death. And if there's eternal death, there must be consequences. So Jesus is saying, I'm here for the entire world. For the entire world, there's only one Savior. And to those who believe on him, they're going to receive eternity. And the reason for that, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And to those who will catch the frisbee. God gave a spectacular promise. Is that you this morning? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Then this promise is for you, and it is absolutely spectacular. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. That's worth amen, right? 
That, that, that's worth it. That's, that's worth praise, glory, honor, hallelujah. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That, that kind of singing. It's worth that. Because the alternative is, he who does not believe has been judged already. So new hope right from the mouth of God. Is Jesus God new hope? Let's say amen if you believe that. Is Jesus God? Okay. God has just said, if you believe in me, you will not be judged, right from the mouth of God. It might really help you if you can say that out loud, I will not be judged. Let's do that together on three. I will not be judged. One, two, three. I will not be judged. That's true for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's God's commitment to you. There's a verse that backs it up. We rarely ever look at it, but it, it comes from the book of Romans, Romans 8, 1. <laughs> They're laughing if you haven't been here because we've been 60 weeks in the book of Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are not my words. This is not Mark Kring. This is God's commitment. <laughs> no condemnation. Now, the story ends and God lets Nicodemus go out the door. But I want you to notice something. Nicodemus gets up from his pew in the church and he walks down the steps and he makes his way out into the parking lot to his really nice shiny car and he's about to go on, take on his afternoon. And as you read the story, you'll notice that Jesus never tackles Nicodemus. Wait, I didn't mean it. Come back. We just want you to be part of the group. And he never softens the story. He leaves it, and he gives him space to process this. Because apparently this intellectual needed time. He needed to be able to process this. Are you an individual who likes happy endings? Do you love happy endings? If you like happy endings, you're going to like where this is going. I've come to appreciate why my wife loves the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> it always has happy endings. I mean, it can be a disaster going on, but in the last five minutes, they're bringing it home. And the guy's going to get the girl. So this is the Hallmark Channel, okay? This is the happy ending. Jesus lets Nicodemus go out the door, and he gives him space to process it. And in the midst of thinking it through, I don't know when it happened or how it happened, and I'm not sure exactly the details because the Bible doesn't give it to us. I'm sure he probably had some sleepless nights because you think about what he was up against mentally. But there's a point where he came to a conclusion about who Jesus is, and he decided, I want that. I want that new life to the degree he's willing to go on display for Jesus. And you have to appreciate the magnitude of what is about to be said here in this closing verse. John 19, 38. Jesus is on the cross. His body is dead. He's, he's a limp. And nobody's taken him off the cross yet. This is where this picks up. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Do you notice that name? Verse 39, Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus for a Jew to touch a dead body, for a Jew to come in contact with that which was defiled seven days, ostracized from the entire community. And everybody in the community knows, everybody knows what you've done because you've picked up a dead body. Now go a step further. For a Jew is one thing. For a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a professor, a Supreme Court justice, to cradle the dead body of a condemned criminal who was just executed by Rome. And the body is still dripping with blood. And it's getting all over your clothes. And everybody can see what you're doing. And you're about to wrap that body in linen after you've washed it and prepared it with aloes as a custom of the Jews, according to the story. You think going public for Jesus is hard? This puts a whole new spin on baptism. That's baptism is like, I'm here, I'm a believer in Jesus, but you got an entire crowd in a church that's applauding you when you come up out of the water saying, go, yeah, that's absolutely awesome. There's no crowd applauding him here. His entire nation has just said, crucify him. He's not our king. And yet Nicodemus has put himself right out there saying, yeah, he absolutely is. See, what you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God absolutely determines what you do. What kind of life change took place in this guy's heart? He got it. Jesus is more than a man. You're more than a great miracle worker, and that is what messed up the people on the hillside who are cheering, touch down Jesus. Yes! You're gonna blow apart Rome! He can do cool miracles. See, that's why you find God weeping on the side of the hill, even though the crowd is cheering. They just wouldn't see what's right there in front of them. I'm confident. I I speak this, I believe, confidently. You should fully expect when you step onto heaven's shores one day to meet Nicodemus. Isn't that a cool thought? Wouldn't you love to sit down and talk to that guy? Here's what I want to send you out the door with. If you remember nothing else, remember this. If you do meet Nicodemus one day, if if you meet him on heaven's shore, it will not be because he earned it, but rather because he discovered the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I want to pray for you as you speak boldly this week, especially coming into the week of Easter. Your friends who don't know Jesus, they need to hear this stuff. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you so much for these students of the word who give up their time on a beautiful day like this to be here. I pray that your blessing would rest upon them as they go out and take on the day. Father, in light of that, we pray for your strength in the midst of this week that we would be willing to go publicly on display 
for the King of Kings. God, for those who are still pretending, just spectators, Father, push. Don't let us go one more day without receiving what you're offering. You've put the frisbee out there, Father. We just have to catch it. Thank you for the truth of what you've shown us in John chapter 3. God, right now, I pray for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the midst of this week, when there can be difficult conversations, that they'd be willing to speak the truth in love and willing to say hard things, and not in a mean way, but in a loving way. That you would use us to draw people to yourself. Father, we would count that a joy and a privilege. So I pray for that. Lord God, I ask now that we would indeed walk in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And we pray for that in the name of the one who redeemed us and bought us at such great price. The Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.